This is an ABC podcast. Time for Science Friction. Hello to you. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Okay, so imagine this. One moment your eyes are cast skyward. The cosmos is your playground. So most of what I did was a combination of data, software and statistics. This is astrophysicist Dr Sam Hinton from the University of Queensland. In January, he submitted his PhD. So I worked on supernova cosmology, and that's essentially taking exploding stars somewhere in the universe and using that to figure out how far away they are. And once you figure out how far away something is and how bright it is, you can try and map out the history of the universe. Obviously, things that are further away are further back in time because light takes time to get to us. So the idea was if we can map out the last 14 billion years of the universe and its expansion, that hopefully we can try and characterise the nature of dark energy and dark matter. That's no mean feat, right? And obviously that's a problem that's all about modelling and statistics. So I, I created Bayesian hierarchical models and other sort of models to try and encapsulate all the nitty gritty details that happen in the universe in some statistically robust way. So just a little wee project. Just a tiny one that managed to consume years of my life. And whether that's because, you know, I just wasn't smart enough or whether it turns out that, damn, it actually really is complicated. Well, I I have opinions on both. Um, If only I was smarter and if only the universe was simpler. Okay, so taking on the entire history of the entire universe right there. So how has this astrophysicist and software engineer now suddenly found himself working on another big but totally different problem, the COVID-19 pandemic? That's who you're meeting today on the show, two young scientists who have had to rapidly retrofit and translate their talents in an unprecedented moment in history. Sam, for one, doesn't shy away from a challenge. If his name sounds familiar to you, that means you might be a fan of this. Sam, how do you think tonight's going to play out? Mate, I wanted to crunch the numbers for this. Uh, (laughs) You're the man to do it. But there's no computer here. I don't know who's going to go home. Uh, I don't even know if Russell's going to play his idol. Yes, Sam was a popular contestant in the 2018 season of Survivor Australia. But bravado aside, what use is an astrophysicist in fighting a global pandemic. After all, as far as we know, no coronavirus has made it into space yet. And that's a relief. Those poor people on the International Space Station, there's no ICU up there. What essentially happened was once COVID started getting serious, everyone everywhere just put out feelers to say, we need help looking at a whole bunch of these tasks. And this happened at UQ, which is where I work. And through the grapevine, people said, we're looking for someone with all these skills. And then Sam's supervisor happens to be the acclaimed dark energy astrophysicist and TV presenter, Professor Tamara Davis. She's also passionate about astrophysics, people using their research knowledge and skills in non-astrophysics domains. So Tamara put Sam's name forward. Oh, the first thing was, surely there are people that are better suited than me. And Sam had just accepted a job offer in the US at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. That's a big deal. But when Sam was told more, he went back to Tamara and said 
are you all right if I just take months off from my actual normal astrophysics project to work on this? And her response was, absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. We'll figure something out. Get on the project and do what you can. It was a, There was no chance that I was turning this down. It was a way to make a, a real contribution. And in astrophysics, uh, you know, we don't make significant contributions every day to society. We may every now and then invent something like the digital camera. And everyone's like, yes, this is amazing. But COVID is a right here, right Right now, 100% immediate problem. So there was absolutely no hesitation jumping into it. So just like that, in a matter of moments, Sam's life has suddenly been turned upside down. Oh, yeah. If I thought I had long hours before, there's, it's nothing like <laughs> the current hours that we have to deal with. Sam is now the lead data analyst on a really crucial international project rolling out in real time in intensive care units across the world during this pandemic. And if you've seen the footage coming out of those ICU units, you'll know that this is a hellish frontier. Enough is enough! Give us what we need to continue to fight this corona virus pandemic. If you do not give it to us, murder co-workers will die. And we are coming here, even if we're tired, even if we're crying. I'm seeing young patients, old patients, people of all age ranges who are just incredibly sick. And you can even hear it now that as I'm walking through patient rooms in the hallway, you just hear oxygen, the sound of the pulse ox. This is a ventilator machine. Sam has joined what's called ECMOCARD, a global project headed up by trailblazing intensive care specialist Professor John Fraser from Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane. ECMOCARD is a mighty acronym, right? It stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for 2019 Novel Coronavirus Acute Respiratory Disease, ECMOCARD. So when your heart and lungs can't do the job of oxygenating your blood, an ECMO machine allows that to happen outside of your body. We want to know essentially how can we best help as many people as possible. So we have very finite resources with this outbreak. We don't have an infinite amount of nurses, doctors and ventilation equipment that we can just you know put everyone on. So we need to know, hey, if if patient X comes through the door and they look like this, what is the best sort of ventilation we can give them? If we just give them a mask, are they going to be fine? Or is this a patient that needs something more severe? Because a nurse can generally do around 10 CPAP masks, so they're very easy ventilation. But if they have to actually mechanically ventilate someone, help out the lungs mechanically, then it's essentially one nurse per patient. And we don't have that many nurses when we have so many patients coming in. So we really want to be able to say when someone walks in the door that they're probably going to need this. Their outcome will be X or Y depending on however we treat them. So when someone comes in, we take their age, we take their weight, and then we need to know what other things do they have. Do they have high blood pressure? Do they have diabetes? Are they a smoker? You know, what is the condition of their lungs? There's so many Things, so many different data points that you can gather in the medical world, 10,000 different questions that you could ask. But what we have in our data are time series. So for two weeks after people get to the ICU, how are their red blood cells evolving? How are their platelet counts doing? So what we want to do is compare their outcomes and their data with 
you know, other people, other healthy people or people that have different uh, afflictions so that we can say, hey, this is the thing that's unique about coronavirus. This is one of the predictors here that's different from anything else. And it's very hard to get that sort of time series data. Doctors and nurses are working around the clock to keep people alive. They're exhausted. So around the world, medical students are stepping up and being recruited to help collect the data. Every day you need to be updating the data and that's why we need for example, those medical students to come in because it is such a large burden if anyone is trying to also treat patients on top of that. We have around 500 different variables from the different patients and about 100 of those we have information, hopefully essentially every day that they're in ICU so that we can see how they evolve over time. I can't say too much more because whilst I have a huge list of variables in front of me, things like procalcitonin, I don't know how they're used in a medical context. All that I can do is generate the reports and then work with the clinicians in real time to say, what do you want to see? What would you expect to see? And how can I best present? these models and this information to you so that you can draw conclusions from it. The urgency of this situation means this is being taken very seriously. Clinicians are working in the dark right now with this new virus, so they'll benefit from a bigger, clearer picture of what's happening for patients around the world. Oh yeah, it's absolutely unbelievable. I've never been involved in a project this large and especially in the current predicament, all the the usual blockades and the bureaucratic slowdowns that you encounter have just been removed. So we have 50 countries now from Estonia to Kuwait to the United States is coming online, the UK, Italy, Spain, Australia is coming online now too tons of countries and then each country also has all the hospitals in it so we've got around 250 hospitals and that number grows every day. Sam is data central. Like many of us he's working from home but his days and nights I suspect look pretty different to most of ours. Uh, Sleepless mostly. (laughs) So every week on Thursday we have a meeting between essentially all the ICUs in the world, uh, well, at least that are part of this study. And this is a Zoom meeting with pages upon pages of people. It goes for a very long time where people go through and they say, look, in our ICU, this is how we're doing. These are the interesting things that we might have seen. So one of the things was something called PEEP, uh, which is just the positive pressure that the ventilators use. So essentially how hard the ventilator is pushing the air into your lungs. And for other similar infections and diseases and viruses, that is a very different value to what it looks like we're seeing works best for coronavirus patients. So someone will say, hey, this is an interesting result that we might have, but we don't know because we only have a few people. And so we'll take this information, we'll go back, we'll create the plots, do the analyses, and then come back to them the next week or whenever they want it and say, look, we've investigated this further. You can see the plots. You can see that this is either you know, a, a bad conclusion to make, it was just a, a statistical fluctuation, or it, it actually, there might be something here and we should get even more data. So most of what I do is there's a combination of me uh, talking to the clinicians and the team and they say, I want to see this, 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 this and this. And then I go away and do that. But then a lot of the other task is the, the less interesting but just as important data grinding 
When you have more than 200 hospitals from a whole bunch of different countries, the data that you get in isn't very well standardized. So if you look at any one variable that we're keeping track of, it might come back in a half dozen units because obviously America will use different units to Australia and then different countries in Europe have different standards as to how they measure things. And all we have are just a list of numbers and units. And so this is a very obviously basic example, but someone has to go through and then try and standardize all the data points that we have to make sure that they're all on the same scale. And then you have to look for outliers because people are entering the data and people aren't perfect. So they make typos, put down incorrect things. And we need to essentially go through all the data and flag the incorrect things or the things that we think look suspicious and then go back to the ICUs and say, hey, is this actually the case? In which case, this is an interesting result and we should investigate it further. Or did someone just you know, make a mistake? And that's very important for us to do because we don't want to draw the wrong conclusions. So you are essentially dealing with oodles and oodles of data coming into you every day overnight. I can't imagine what your inbox looks like every morning. Oh, I, I used to think that I had a lot of emails. A dozen emails a day, I was like, oh, that's pretty respectable. Uh, that's a joke. Dozens of emails an hour, that's the new normal. And it's I can see why people get personal assistance now because I, I am struggling and I have a very ruthless now. If it comes in and it's not coronavirus stuff, delete. It's truly phenomenal, but I guess it is positive in a way. It means that the stuff that we're doing is valued because they keep coming back and saying, hey, can you do this, 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 and this? And once you've done that, how about this as well? And we say, sure, no problem. Check back in 20 minutes. Wow. Incredible thing. What an incredible process you're part of. I want to get a sense, Sam, of how your skills as an astrophysicist translate across to tracking in real time the impact of this pandemic in hospitals around the world. Like, what is it that you're using that an, that you used as an astrophysicist? I, I also come from a software engineering background and I've worked in the industry. So my software skills are probably uh, a mite better than the average self-taught astronomer. I've written data pipelines. I have my own open source libraries. I've run code workshops. So I have a very thorough code background. And that really helps because a lot of the project is just code. It's knowing how to do things, how to do things efficiently and how to do things fast. And Astro does have a lot of code pipelines as well. You know, the telescope will point at the sky, download the data, it'll get processed, it'll get sent to place X, will then do things on it, send it off. And there's a very similar process here in the medical data. You know, it's gathered at the hospitals, it's sent off to Oxford, we download it at UQ, we do things to it, and then we put it on a secure server. And so it's a very similar process, just the data itself is different. And then on top of that, you have the whole statistics side of things. So Astro has a lot of statistics, as does almost every scientific field. And a lot of the tools are very similar. But it's that combination of the, the stats on one hand and the code experience on the other that made me a good fit for the project. When clinicians from certain countries, the countries that have been worse afflicted, join in, you, you can see how visibly exhausted they are. That they, they are currently on, you know, however many shifts back to back, and they, they just need results and they need to get back to work. And then you can see the other countries that are starting to get inundated where things are a bit antsy, a bit tense, and you know that they know that it's going to get much worse in the next few weeks. Uh, so it's, it's always a very, uh, I would say, somber, but uh, professional environment. Everyone's just there to try and give the updates and get back to work, get what they can out of it, contribute, and then come back later. 
So right now, with the small amount of data we have, we can't say anything too definitively. But hopefully in a few weeks, we will be able to start giving them better resources so that they can help people get better outcomes. It's early days yet for the ECMO card project and wait for the sweet little twist in the tale of Sam Hinton's story a little later. But their challenge is then to understand why they are seeing different outcomes for different patients in the data they're collecting. How does this disease play out biologically in the body? And that's where my next guest on Science Friction comes in. My name is Dr. Nick Gerardin, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. I study the immune system, and we're currently focusing our attention on um, the immunology of COVID-19. But just a matter of weeks ago, this is certainly not what Nick was working on. He was pursuing his research into a type of white blood cell in our bodies, T-cells, and how they function in our immune system to defend us against viral and bacterial infections and cancer too. It's been such a busy um, and intense couple of weeks. It's funny to think back to pre-COVID-19. It feels so distant, although, you know, in, in reality, it was not that long ago. It was, you know, eight weeks or so. But then came the pandemic and the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity in Melbourne has become a global centre for urgent research into the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's a bit of a weird time to be at work at the moment, actually, and it's hard to keep up, really, because it's, it's such a rapidly changing environment. The Institute's very, very quiet. So work as normal has ceased and really only people, priority researchers are allowed in the building. So obviously people directly working on COVID-19. So whether that be through diagnostics, um, various public health measures, including epidemiology or fundamental research on the virus and the disease, these are the vast majority of people that are let into the building. And of course, we're, we're a very large organization and collection of organizations. So even though there's a lot of work going on on directly on COVID-19, there's still a lot of people that are currently at home and working from home. Mm. So on one hand, it's very quiet at work. But on the other hand, the people that are at work, it's a very sort of focused and intense environment with, with people, yeah, literally working around the clock at the moment. The Doherty Institute was the first to isolate, to grow the SARS-CoV-2 virus outside of China and and then share it with other, uh, in a non-infectious way, I guess, but share it with other researchers and the WHO. Why was that such a significant step in us coming to understand this pandemic? Because that must have been really, that, that must have been a real buzz to be in an institute where that had happened. It was. It was very exciting. All of a sudden, the Doherty was central to obviously national news, but also international news. So it was a it was a big step. So one of the key ways we try to understand this virus is through studying it in the lab and using it in infectious models and and various experimental procedures. And so really growing the virus and isolating purified virus is a major first step towards many many of those studies. And so yeah, it was a it was a very big deal to be able to grow the virus, isolate it, um, and then be able to distribute the information um, derived from that to various institutes around the world. But back in January, as it was for all of us, life was very different for Nick. He was head down, bum up, working on a major grant proposal and doing some lab work. COVID-19 started to emerge and we initially very... um, 
slowly started turning our attention to it, but that that very quickly escalated to full attention was all of a sudden on on COVID-19. Tell me what that was like, that the sort of thought processes that are going through your collective minds in a team when you go, this is bloody serious and we need to pivot fast. It, in, in some ways it emerged and evolved so quickly that it was it was sort of hard to keep up with the thought processes. Mm. And many of it, much of it was sort of out of our hands. So, so initially early on, there's this emerging story of a viral disease that's spreading and causing a lot of a lot of problems in China, and then it starts to spread, you know, further out of China and into into Europe and whatnot. Um, and so it's sort of around these times that we're scratching our heads, going, "Yeah, look, this this is starting to not look so great, and there's the potential that we could we could be doing something here." So we started sort of, I guess, in a way, dabbling with with what pipelines that we have in our lab that might be useful for studying this disease and advancing some of our knowledge on how this disease works and how the virus works and particularly obviously how the immune system is involved in recognizing that virus and then all of a sudden the pandemic i guess escalated very rapidly around the world so it sort of started off as a a curiosity driven thing but very very rapidly became a we absolutely have to be working on this so was it a case of overnight abandoning your ongoing experiments and your extremely singular focus on all the things that you were doing and turning a sharp corner, like waking up one morning and going, OK, now I'm working on COVID-19? Yeah, and it's it's strange. I mean, I certainly don't see it as abandoning those those other projects. But yeah, at, at the moment, it's... It's been very strange. Um, I haven't really given those other projects much thought for the last four or five weeks. My, my entire time has been consumed with current COVID-19 projects. And it's, it's just weird to think that, you know, in mid-January, I hadn't even, haven't even really heard of COVID-19, you know. Yeah. What are you working on now? Because you really are at the pointy end of the scientific effort to understand how our body's immune system is responding and adapting to this virus. And it seems to be doing that in such different ways in different people. That's exactly right. One aspect of what we're doing, for example, is assessing patient blood samples. So from our work studying the immune system in the context of cancer, for example, Mm. we routinely get human tissue samples and human blood samples and assess the immune component of those blood samples and, and use that to understand how the immune system is responding to either a cancer or, in this case, an infectious disease. So we've been able to now very rapidly use that system for analysis of COVID-19 positive bloods, for example. So you're getting samples from uh, people who have been infected with the disease in Australia? That's right, yes, yes. So give us a real sense of what you then do with that sample, what you're trying to understand is inside it. Blood is essentially consists of two broad types of blood cells. So we've got our red blood cells, which are involved in circulating oxygen around the body, so our cells can keep oxygenated. 
But on the other hand, we've got white blood cells. Now, white blood cells are a very diverse population um, of immune cells. So these are the things that are involved in fighting infections and whatnot. And, and really, they, they use the blood as a, as a mechanism of circulating around the body to different areas. So what we can do is we can take blood and isolate those white blood cells. And they're really a snapshot of what the immune system is doing at any given time. So we can then further subdivide those white blood cells into all the different major types. So we mentioned T cells earlier, but another major component incredibly relevant to fighting a viral infection is our B cells. Um, so we've been able to study both our T cells and our B cells and try and isolate those that appear to be responding to to the virus itself. So B cells produce antibodies, which after we've been infected, they then recognise that we've been infected and, and uh, are ready to pounce next time we might encounter a viral infection. That's exactly right. Rather than killing the infected cell like a T cell would, a B cell sits back from afar and it produces these molecules that it expresses and puts out into the blood. Now those molecules actually bind to the virus and block it from functioning properly. So a B cell is the main target, in fact, of a uh, of a vaccine. So what we're trying to do when we make a vaccine is elicit a response from our B cells so they start producing these antibodies or molecules that are able to block the virus. So tricking our body into thinking that it's it's had a full onslaught. That's exactly right, yes. So what are you trying to investigate? Because the variation of responses between different people to this virus has been utterly striking, even different healthy people. Some are killed by it, some recover with, you know, having had light symptoms, others are asymptomatic. I mean, this is a minefield for an immunologist like yourself, surely. And I think that's a key point. There are so many immunological questions we can be asking. We've got a number of different research projects in the lab. But for example, one of those projects is trying to understand the nature of that B-cell response. We're getting samples from people who had severe disease, mild disease, some people who were exposed to infected people, so either they, they live with someone who got the disease, but they themselves never actually showed any symptoms. Ah. So now we can actually compare between them the B cells, for example, in those patients, what was different about their response to the virus? And so by understanding what makes a really great immune response to the virus and prevents us from getting severe disease, for example, then we can have a more targeted approach when we're developing therapeutics to, to stop um, people getting such drastic disease. If there are any obvious biomarkers of severe disease, then all of a sudden that, that might make a, a new diagnostic, for example. So if we can assess their blood and it turns out that they're positive for these particular biomarkers, mm. then we might be able to use that information to triage those patients for particular types of care. That's just one example of some of the possibilities that we might be able to use this information for. And I guess a vaccine is one possibility and that might be years away. This is not a straightforward effort, even though there are multiple teams worldwide, including at the Doherty Institute, who are working on different vaccine approaches to target this virus in different ways. So yes. are, there, are there possibly quicker interim strategies that I gather you might be involved in? When we talk about um, vaccines, we've got active and passive vaccines. So 
active vaccines are the classic vaccines that we're talking about that can take quite a substantial amount of time to develop. So as we sort of touched on before, the, the idea of these active vaccines is to trick the immune system into thinking that it's infected. And so your B cells then launch a response mm. and produce these antibodies so the other way of approaching this is passive vaccination. So how this works is that we can generate those antibodies outside of the person, so in the lab, for example, and give a patient antibodies which will block the virus and prevent it from being able to spread. So really you're providing the component that the B cell makes without eliciting a B cell response. So it's a sort of antibody transplantation, perhaps say from a, a patient who's survived the virus and has the antibodies circulating in their blood. Exactly. So that, uh -huh. that's one way of doing it. Another, another way might be from the studies we're currently doing, we're trying to isolate B cells mm. from patients that have had strong responses. So if we can isolate the particular B cells that are able to produce antibodies um, that block the virus, we can, we can then understand how to make those specific antibodies. We can do that in the lab, essentially. And at present, we still don't know a great deal about the immune response. What we do know is that B cells appear to respond. People that are able to clear the virus appear to be able to generate at least some degree of antibody response. So I think it's likely that this virus is eliciting an immune response. Exactly how varied that response is is still very unclear. And those are the sorts of things that we really need to understand. It's highly collaborative at the moment. And the, the amount of data sharing and just cross-talk and cross-pollination between institutes and countries and as far as scientific research is concerned has been tremendous. I, I think there's this real sense of camaraderie and community amongst the scientific world. And so to some extent, it feels like we really are all on this together. Yeah, because science is collaborative locally, internationally, but something that doesn't get discussed enough is that it's also intensely competitive. And often there's a race between different labs across the world to get to a, a finishing line, to publish a finding first. Kudos to the lab who first comes up with what looks like a viable vaccine. I mean, obviously then there's the extensive clinical trial process that has to happen after that and all the various phases of clinical trials. Are you also involved in, in vaccine work? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we are currently involved in a few different strategies of generating a, a vaccine, both active and passive. And our main role really is to try to understand how it is that the immune system responds to those specific different types of vaccines and how well they elicit an immune response. This is complicated though. I mean, this may take years and years and years, not just 12 to 18 months as some have been suggesting. You know, the 12 to 18 months that's been quoted is a very, um, I guess, fast-forwarded version of, of the typical pipeline. So given the, the enormous focus across the world at the moment and the, really the urgency for developing a, a vaccine, it almost certainly will be a much quicker development route. But vaccine development is very complicated. A method of creating a vaccine that works, for example, for influenza may not work at all in the context of COVID-19. But having said that, there is some promise that from the early studies of what we do know about COVID-19, 
it does seem to be a, an attractive vaccine candidate. That is so encouraging. You know, many people have have lost their jobs, many people are working at home, many people are wondering how on earth they can be useful. I mean, you have, in a sense, been given a kind of fundamental task, which must be strangely satisfying, strangely purposeful. Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's very satisfying. And in some ways, it's ironically a great distraction from some of the stress that's been involved in this worldwide pandemic. Mm. So although I'm in the lab working on it every day, you know, the, the focus required in the lab really has given me something to distract myself with, which is I've personally found very helpful. <laughs> I'm finding it very hard to fathom how this is all going to pan out. And partly because we've actually been very sheltered here in Australia. I think we're incredibly lucky that we haven't had the sorts of scenarios that are occurring elsewhere in the world. It's easy to to think that, oh, you know, in, in a few weeks' time when they decide to lift the social isolation rules or at least start lifting those, we'll slowly just return to normal. Now, I suspect that's probably not going to be the case there'll be very long-lasting ramifications on life as we know it. But at the moment, it's unclear exactly what those effects are going to be, and it's very hard to anticipate them. Dr Nick Gerardin, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Doherty Institute on suddenly finding his life at the strange scientific front line of a pandemic. Amidst this intensity and reorientation by scientists like Nick and Sam Hinton, the astrophysicist we heard from earlier, there's been light amidst the shade. So working very long days and into the night, big meetings with clinicians and hospitals around the world, full on. And yet somehow, in the middle of all this, just last week, I think, something else big happened in your life. What was it? Uh, yes, uh, last week I got married. It was a wonderful <laughs> ceremony, uh, the celebrant, uh, two witnesses. We saved money on the reception by simply not having it. And then for the honeymoon, we opened up Google Maps Street View and just clicked around a few different countries. We're like, oh, that's very nice. And then I went back to work because I had a telecon that night. Straight back into your data. I mean, it's not waiting around for me. It just keeps flowing in, so you've got to keep up. That is distinctly unromantic. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have to take her somewhere nice at the end of this, I think. I mean, we I got chocolate, uh, but there's only so much chocolate can do. Well, she might take you somewhere nice instead, so... <laughs> I'm done with that. The default stereotypical picture that people have in their head when you mention a scientist probably has the, the white lab coat on and probably for some reason a chemistry beaker in their hand swelling some glowing fluid. But there's so much that you can do in science and there are so many more PhD students than academic positions that we already know in astrophysics that, you know, 
90% of people that do a PhD go on to work in other fields. And the skills that you learn in astrophysics and in science in general as how to analyze data, how to create models, machine learning techniques and similar are used absolutely everywhere. So a large number of astrophysics people that I know now work in data science or machine learning down in Silicon Valley, earning very, very respectable wages uh, simply by no longer working in science. Yeah. And that's fine. That's that's something that we're trying to actively combat in academia is uh, any negative stereotypes that are associated with leaving for industry or not being a pure scientist. And that's a wall that's been mostly broken down. And I think that's that's very good, especially for the PhD students that need to find a job. If there's no stigma, there's no issues, and it helps everyone's mental health. And hear, hear to that, hey? Dr. Sam Hinton there from the University of Queensland and mighty good luck to Sam and Nick for their incredible efforts. The show is produced by myself and Jane Lee, studio engineer this week, Richard Gervin. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and email me from the ABC's Science Friction website with story ideas and a whole lot more. I'd love to hear from you. Until next week, you take care, hey? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.